The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, emerging perspectives on people, process, and profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood. Hi, Olivia here. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each week we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world. And with a special emphasis on what I feel is our most valuable asset, our human capital. So today I'm thrilled to have, back by popular demand, Gene Pease. And we'll be discussing human capital and workforce optimization. But before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Gene. And there's a lot to say, but I'm going to be brief. He's a thought leader, CEO of Vestrix, and co-author of Developing Human Capital, Using Analytics to Plan and Optimize Your Learning and Development Investments. And that's just out this year. And he also co-authored Human Capital Analytics, How to Harness the Potential of Your Organization's Greatest Asset. A CEO for over 25 years, Gene brings his seasoned perspective to Vestrix, where he and his team have developed software and consulting using breakthrough statistical methodology to optimize human capital investments. So, Gene, welcome back to Quantum Business Insights. Thanks, Olivia. Great to uh, spend some time with you again. Thank you. Well, so our topic for today really hits at the heart of why I do this show, and you talk about this in your book, Developing Human Capital. Our global economy is constantly putting pressure on businesses to evolve. What are the forces that you've identified that are changing the workplace? Well, the the single largest that companies have some control over is the um, generational changes within the workforce. So... You know, with the economy um, changing now, boomers and getting better, boomers are beginning to retire. So we knew we had an aging workforce and millennials are going to be taking over um, the workplace in the next 10 years. Um, what we, the HR profession didn't really prepare very well for was this giant exodus of boomers retiring. And the good news from having a bad economy that we just are coming out of was that it slowed down the boomer retirements. But now it's happening, and some of the reports I've seen say it's up to 10,000 boomers are retiring a day. And so companies are really having to deal with this whole idea around knowledge transfer. And Mm. you've you've got all this knowledge that these older managers have, and how, how do they transfer that? to the younger generations now. And, uh, and, and some industries like uh, utility industry and the government have even a more acute aging workforce. And so their problems are even uh, uh, more exponential than kind of normal businesses. Is there, I, I'm curious too, because I've had other guests that have talked about the differences in the way the millennials and maybe even the Gen Yers think and act and to some extent because they're more connected just growing up through the web and technology um, are they kind of different in the way they work on teams or collaborate have you seen that well I yeah I think there's some you know there's all these generalizations about the millennials and 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 I think some of the generalizations are true. There's a wide range of um, skill sets and and um, 
um, of the millennials and wide range of motivation, all of that. But but generally, they're we're way more connected, much more comfortable with technology than mm. than those of us that didn't grow up with it. Um, they're they're much more socially conscious mm. than we did they they feel stronger about work-life balance than the boomers did so there's a and it's not good or bad it's it's just different and so us that are now running companies and we're going to be retiring in the next five or ten or fifteen years need to be thinking about how we change our workforces to to accommodate really a changing workforce and a different demographic well so and what i love about what you write about and what you do at festrix is bringing measurement together with this need for really uh, enabling the change of the workforce. So, we mentioned a lot about measurement. What are some of the ways that we can get started with measurement? Well, first, let me let me give you my point of view about measurement and analytics. Is measurement and analytics doesn't solve any problems, but it gives you insights into this changing workforce to be able to understand um, behaviors and outcomes to be able to then deal with how do you make change. And so um, I'm a firm believer in that um, analytics can really help give insights that you can't get any other way. And, and HR needs to go from kind of the art of HR to the science of HR using fact-based decision-making, which we know is used in lots of other professions. Mm-hmm. And we know HR is probably 10 years behind marketing in their adoption of analytics and marketing was behind finance and operations and some of the other areas. And so um, we feel very strongly and that's what we built our company around of trying to give insights to managers to make more informed decisions about what's going on, not only with their changing workforce, but this changing environment that we're in, changing technology, uh, globalization, Social issues, all these other things that are going on that, that that are that are affecting the workforce, but yet we really don't understand it unless we can kind of begin to to analyze it and and, and dig deep to it. So to answer your question is, um, in human resources, you hear a lot of excuses that we don't have good data, or I don't, I can't get the data, or um, or it's in multiple systems and I get it. So from our point of view. Don't wait till data is perfect because, as you know, it never will be. <laughs> Don't wait till you have one system you can pull us out of. You've got to really start kind of small and find projects that are of high value, maybe not trying to boil the ocean immediately, but you're beginning to, to answer questions that are important. And as you start digging, you'll learn how to do this work, you'll get more confident work, and you'll begin to tackle larger questions and larger data sources. So we say always pick a project where you've got a high probability of you think you've got decent data, pick a project that's not overly political so you don't get all the political arguments about this work can or can't be done, and start small and kind of walk or crawl Start getting your feet wet in this work, get comfortable in the work, and then as you get more comfortable and confident and better skill sets, you'll begin to, to tackle bigger, more complex problems. Yeah, and I guess sell the organization on the idea of actually investing and maybe getting the data to be in a better condition for this analysis and things like that. Well, this is so interesting. I have a daughter out in California that's a millennial, and she's in a sales management position. And she called me last night, and she had gotten into an argument with her boss that was based upon opinions. And I asked her a couple questions. It was really, for us, kind of basic, but again, she'd never kind of thought this way. She had three years of history in her organization of the results of hiring salespeople and their output. And, I, and, I, and I, within just a few minutes, I said, put together a very simple spreadsheet of what you know historically and then forecast that to where your organization wants you to grow your sales and and take that and have a fact-based decision based on what you know in your company and the history versus people's opinions. And that was, you know, the light bulb went out with her and said, yeah, that's the conversation I want to have. I feel I know all the numbers. But again, she got into an argument because it was someone's opinion versus hers. 
difference. So the the whole idea around this is is to to get out of the pure H, art of HR, you know, making decisions based on either gut feeling or I've been doing this forever and I know, um, or who yells the loudest and really start working with facts and and move into more of a fact-based decision-making mindset. And you, when you start doing that, it's it just changes the whole dynamic of conversations and decision-making. Well, and it's so interesting, too, that you mentioned HR being about 10 years behind marketing. So my early days as a I still work as an analyst, a data analyst, uh, but in the beginning, I was at the first stages of using predictive modeling to figure out who to make an offer to, and we had to fight, not fight, but debate with the marketing people who said they knew in their gut who their market was, Um, and it really did get to be difficult at times because people don't want to give up up the territory so or or maybe just the the way they're comfortable so when you're working with hr people do you find that they're kind of resistant to the data or do they welcome the facts or does it vary i guess by the person yeah we see a wide spectrum we see clients that know i mean i think in the last couple of years this has really changed pretty rapidly Mm. But we see a lot of our clients now know that uh, um, that they have to move from um, opinion-based or survey-based data to, to more qualitative, quantitative data, more from qualitative to quantitative. And they're moving in that direction where we help them as it gets started and show them how to do it. Organizations that still are very resistant because of things you just said—they are resistance. But I see the HR profession changing pretty rapidly for a number of reasons. One is we see now a lot of people running HR and training functions that came from the operational area, and they don't have this 20-year going up in HR kind of bias that, that this work is all about art, not science. Um, and we see um, younger people coming into the profession that are, don't have this. Um, art of HR background, they're used to more fact-based decision-making. And so I think as the, as the boomers keep retiring and new people get into the profession, I think it's changing. And I've seen a pretty radical or pretty rapid change in the last couple of years. I just read a uh, Burson, uh, Burson by Deloitte annual survey that said, though, that only 14% of HR departments have any kind of a dedicated analytics function and uh, compared to 77% in operations had one I think it was like 58% had it in sales and 56% had it in marketing and so if you say marketing's got 56% of those organizations have dedicated uh, analytics departments versus 14% of HR HR's got a lot lot of catch-up to do to to catch up to really who was a lager, marketing was a lager in analytics and HR is significantly behind them. So we have a long way to go as a, as a profession. Yeah, but it seems like there's a lot of low-hanging fruit perhaps. And, and the way I've seen it is that the companies that start to use it and then really do well, it kind of puts pressure on other companies to follow suit, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. And there's all kinds of evidence that in all kinds of studies that that show that organizations that are making fact-based decisions outperform their peers that don't I, you know I, I don't I don't have you know we've been at this now 11 years and for, for probably eight years we had to argue that this work not only could be done but there's value to it I really get into those arguments anymore for the most part people understand that advanced analytics can help decisions the the question is how do we get them kind of over the hurdle of getting started so you mentioned data and the political environment and maybe people's resistance is there any other obstacles you've seen to getting this going well in hr it, it this gets back to data but hr um you know the the problem hr has is that there's no systems that were developed specifically for HR, except around payroll and insurance and those things. So where finance has created some very rigorous standards 
and uh, quality and um, for financial statements. And most of the systems that were built in organizations were built for financial reporting, mm. keeping track. HR didn't do that. So the profession technologically has grown up with a very diverse and, and multiple sets of systems. And HR's problem is, is they generally have multiple systems that don't talk to each other if they talk to each other, they don't talk very well, and most don't talk to each other, that they're trying to figure out not only what data do I need to pull, but the quality of that data. And you've got, we've worked with companies that have were somewhat built by acquisition, and they, we did a study for a large public company that had seven learning management systems, and the 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 employees had trouble figuring out where they go for what information for learning because they might have to go to two or three different systems depending on the type of learning they wanted. And so part of our problem or challenge in, in HR is to kind of figure out where the data resides in what systems and then you have to go get it. And in many cases, HR doesn't control some of those systems. So then there's the political part of going to the head of that department and asking for some workload to pull data from that's outside of their normal normal task. So those are the biggest challenges I see. The, the other is all of the external dynamics that are going on that nobody really has a lot of control of. Globalization, for example, and all these social issues that are now important. Um, how you grapple with all that and you throw that into the mix of trying to train a salesperson to sell more product is, is complicated. And so these are fairly complicated problems with a lot of variables that um, it takes a, a, a pretty sophisticated skill set to figure out. Yeah, I could see that. Um, and we are up on a break. I just have a really quick question before we go to break. Are these topics being addressed at HR conferences or in HR circles pretty heavily? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure pretty heavily is the right <laughs> word. They're definitely being addressed. Great. And, you know, I think there's kind of some of these conferences we go to, and I, I do a fair amount of speaking at them. Hmm. of thoughts you have, those that are kind of showing and doing and talking about the things that they have historically done, and then you have um, some organizations and thought leaders really talking about the, the, the advanced stuff that's being done and where the future is. So, I, you know, the industry is getting better at talking about these issues. I can't say um, every conference is heavily weighted to those, but I definitely see more of a conversation on these issues today than I did, say, three, year, three or four years ago. Oh, so that's that's great news. So again, we're um, talking about human capital and workforce optimization. My guest is Gene Pease, and you can read more about what Vestrix is doing at www.vestrics.com, and we'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Engage with Andy Bush takes you inside the mind of a top global market and public policy analyst who has been featured regularly on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and numerous radio and television programs. Our program will bring you guests and stories from the top of the political and business worlds. Each show includes Andy's point of view roundup and what it means for you at home. Life's complicated. Let Andy help you figure it out. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be? Or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. Voice America Business Network. 
the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here. Welcome back. I'm with my guest, Gene Pease of Vestrix. And we're talking about human capital and workforce optimization. And before the break, we were talking about the changing nature of the global economy and the pressure on the workforce and how HR is kind of lagging in fact-based decision-making, but how important it's becoming and um, some of the challenges that they have, that HR departments have in in actually using fact-based decision-making. And so we talked about some of the obstacles before the break, and I'd like to know, you mentioned a little bit about uh, getting, getting support. Why is it important to involve your stakeholders when you're venturing into something like this? Well, for two reasons. One is, typically, your stakeholders know more about their business than you do, and so we always include multiple um, points of view on the design of a study so that um, we really understand not only the outcomes that you're trying to achieve and measure, but some of the political ramifications of it and Mm. and politically how you go get data. Um, Because in HR, the work that we do at least, we always we always link an investment, an HR investment, to a business outcome, and, and HR just doesn't have access generally to the data that's that's in the performance area of sales or operations or whatever that might be. So we, so okay, um, to us, talking to stakeholders is critical for for a number of reasons. One is um, to design a study and actually do the measurement. Um, stakeholders understand their business outcomes better than HR typically does. And and our work always links HR investments to business outcomes. And so to do a study around sales training or performance management that might be affecting factories, we need to talk to the stakeholders that are on the ground in those areas to really understand what are the key metrics and what's driving that. So to design a study well you don't do it in a cloud, you do it um, talking to the stakeholders involved in them. The other point that's important is we learned, and we kind of learned this the hard way doing our consulting work, is that politically, if you get stakeholders involved in the design of a study and, and, and involved in it, they're bought into the assumptions in the study and the outcomes, and they become part of the process, not become a critic maybe at the end of it. And we learned that the hard way when in our early work we did some studies, we thought the results were fantastic, we presented the results, and either operating people or finance people started shooting holes in it because they didn't either agree with the assumptions or they, did, they wanted to argue about them. Hmm. And so for us, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why collaborating on these things instead of doing them in isolation in the ivory tower really makes sense. The other reason is most of these investments that affect business outcomes, the business unit has to, has to sometimes execute on those findings. It's not HR that would, or training that would, that would execute on the findings. It might be at the business unit. So if they're involved in the study and they understand it and they buy into the results, it'll, they will then have a much higher probability of executing those changes that you're predicting should be happening um, if they're involved in, 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 at the beginning of it. Does that, yeah. that make sense? It does, and it sounds like you would have to actually get the stakeholders to see what's in it for them, right? So what are some of the ways you, you work with, I guess, socializing the results? Well, the, f- the first thing we do before we socialize is we actually force our clients to go through a f- half a day what we call stakeholder meeting and we try to get everybody in a room if we can. Mm-hmm. Sometimes because of geography 
that's impossible. So we do it tele teleconference, but we put somebody from finance and somebody from operations and a couple of stakeholders and the and the subject matter experts and maybe the head of learning or the head of HR in a room together and we through a, a guided discussion we get them to design the study we we don't design the study we have them do but we have a methodology that kind of walks them through a, a thought process and it's really pretty simple it's really thinking about if I'm making an investment and you tell me why I'm making that, I'm trying to increase sales or lower turnover or whatever that might be, um, what's the chain of evidence I could begin to see, visualize that that, that, that investment sees change? And so our vocabulary isn't around KPIs, it's around leading indicators. What are those things that you can begin to see to change, but you're not it's the cookie crumbs in the forest that tells you're on the right path to the cottage, but you're not at the cottage. And then how would you visualize or how would you show what success means from a business point of view? And then, so we, we design a study without talking about data until the very end. So that we design a study kind of ideally, and then we see what data we have to, to support that chain of evidence. Well, I think that would serve two purposes. One would be to not, not scare them in the beginning, but get them to thinking about it, you know, from their point of view. But also, if they see the value in it in the end, then they may be more interested in investing in data in the future. Have you seen that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you get their buy-in. So, yeah, they'll help you get data that they own that you don't, for example. You don't get into these turf wars about, it's my data, why do you want it kind of a thing. Right. So, the whole buy-in process, what we've learned, has really been important, not just for what I would call a study, but what I would call a successful study. And that is, you know, if these studies don't help make change and improve the business, they're of no value. I mean, as a consultant, you could pay us to do that, but there's no value in that from my point of view. So the whole idea is, is that if you can collaborate on this stuff and get people to buy in and really understand the value of it, they'll, they, they will then execute the change, which is really what you want in the organization, right? Right, you, yeah. You, you want these investments to, to affect something. Hopefully then with the buy-in process, the, the people that are responsible for making the change will then make it happen and they'll see the value of that. So with that, interest in understanding it do you use dashboards and benchmarks and what are some of the values of those well <laughs> I'll, I'll try to be positive on this so mo we use all of the data that comes out of the systems and there's some really pretty dashboards and some very not so pretty ones but the majority of data that comes out of dashboards and benchmarks are around activity-based metrics it's it's time to fill in uh, recruiting is how many people took training and how many completions there were in uh, uh, training, for example. Mm. And, and that data is important for running the department, but it has nothing to do with impacting ultimately business outcomes and, and really predictive, predictive change. And so that's all the basic data that we pull. And so we use all of that data. We use survey-based data as, as data points to look at. It always link that data to business outcomes. And in our, what we call workforce optimization, we're trying to isolate that investment from all the other variables in the environment. So no, number one, we can understand in isolation of all of the other things going in the environment, what has that investment made an impact on and to what degree. And then if you can do that work, then you can understand against all your different demographics of the company, people demographics, location demographics, where that investment's working and where it's not working. So predictively, you can make change. You can keep applying the investment to the people and places around the world that it's working, and you begin to fine-tune the investment for those people and places it's not working. And that's where the predictive analytics come in. So HR and training historically, is is done what I call spread the peanut butter equally. And they really haven't done a very good job of segmenting their populations. 
So the work that we do, advanced analytics, predictive analytics, can begin to understand where putting that pita butter is working and where you need to maybe put some jelly because the peanut butter isn't working in, in, in your different types of people and or locations around the world. I love your metaphors. It, it really makes it simple. really does. So, um, so what are activity metrics? Should we and should we be making decisions based on them? Well, well, activity metrics are important if you're running a department. So mm-hmm. if I'm in recruiting, time to fill is oh. an important metric, right? Because if I can lower my time to fill from 40 days to 30 days, I will save money for my department and the company. So that, that's an important metric. But, but what's critical to think about is, am I affecting the quality of that hire if I'm lowering that metric? So mm-hmm. I've got to be thinking about a little bit longer term of, of okay, I've got a budget. I'm trying to, I'm trying to increase or decrease those numbers. Um, and how can I do that? That's activity metrics. You know, oh. how many people are training and completed. So, if I'm running a department, that's an, those are important things to be looking at. But where we come in is we start saying, okay, does that reduction in time to fill affect quality of hire? And how do you measure quality of hire? Is that based on retention or time to competency? Mm-hmm. You know, all of those things. And so we take a more holistic look than just the activity metrics. And what we're trying to do is always marry that data with business outcomes holistically. So you can isolate, uh, you can look at isolated metrics like time to fill and say, I did a great job this year, I reduced my time to fill. But if you don't look at the other kind of half of that, the future of that, you could be lowering your costs to hire people and ending up with decreasing your quality of hire, which has drastic effects on your business downstream. Mm. That makes sense. So I'm sure HR is familiar with big data. Everybody else is talking about it. Do you think it's hype or real in HR? Well, I think it's a hype term. Uh, You know, it's kind of like predictive analytics is a bit of a hype term right now, right? Everybody's talking about it and Mm -hmm. very few people are doing it. The fact is, though, that we now have with technology – all kinds of ways to gather data and big data means we just have access to much more data than we ever have. Now we've got all this data gathering around unstructured data. Mm. You know, before it used to be just strictly stuff I could see. Now I can capture data that's around social networking and email and all of that stuff. So the idea behind big data is correct. We now have lots more data and we're figuring out techniques to really get even unstructured data and look at it. So the idea behind big data, I just, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like all of these industry jargons. Big data is a term and it's popular. Mm-hmm. The problem I have with the word though, it scares a lot of HR people because they have trouble with data generally and then you throw this, oh my God, big data thing at them and, it, and it's scares some of the people that aren't on the cutting edge of the stuff. So, But the idea behind big data is actually very good. We have lots of new te- techniques to data mine. We're getting much more sophisticated, and, and, and we now have machines that can learn and actually do, do uh, machine learning to help us figure things out that would take us a long time to figure out on our own. And we have unstructured and structured data. So with technology advancements and some great thinking behind that, we now can dig deeper into all these variables that are out there and much more accuracy than we could in the past. And that's really what big data brings us, I guess. All right. So it sounds like like in the past when we wanted more data, we had to go buy it. But with what you're saying around gathering unstructured data, there's probably a lot in the company, especially... I would think around human capital that you could actually collect around from emails or or maybe internal surveys, things like that. Is that a fair statement? There's tons of data in, in organizations. <laughs> it, there's just tons, and the the trick is to figure out. Uh, you know, I have a. I, I'm working on a third book. I, I don't know why, but I'm working on a third <laughs> book because I, I have a lot to say about this subject. 
<laughs> and um, it, it's just we've we've got to find ways to fight our way through this big data thing and make sense of this. And so that's what go back to, I think your first question or one of your first questions was, we need to figure out how to start small, start answering questions that are important. And it's, as you know, being an analyst, as you start peeling the onion, that always offers the opportunity to ask more questions and keep digging deeper and deeper and peeling that onion more and more. Yeah, I think that's the way it works is that you uh, analyze something very basic and then it just opens up a bunch of other questions that are ripe for analysis and, and data gathering. So it's it's really fun. Um, but we're up on our second break, believe it or not. And um, it's just been such an enjoyable conversation. Again, my guest is Gene Pease of Vestrix. We're talking about human capital and workforce optimization. I highly recommend, I, I can't believe you're working on a third book, but the first book was great, Human Capital Analytics. Second book, Developing Human Capital. Check them out and we'll be back in a few minutes. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Welcome back. I'm Olivia with Gene Pease, and we're talking about human capital and workforce optimization. And before the break, we were talking about metrics and, and ways to get people engaged in the outcomes, and a little, little bit about big data and the concern people have, at least People that haven't worked with much data get overwhelmed by big data, which I totally understand. Um, and in the, so over the course of the conversation, we've talked about predictive analytics and optimization, and a lot of people don't understand the value of it. Uh, but why do you think it's so important? Well, let's. I'll give you an example. We know that if we, if there were a hundred of us in a class either electronically or in a room, that there would be a wide variety of acceptance to that class. And there would be a wide variety of outcomes that would come, learning outcomes that would come from that because we're all, we're different. And there's different backgrounds and demographics and cultural. And so historically the industry has given the same thing to everybody so so a sales manager would come to the head of training and say you know our sales force just is has trouble closing contracts give me go find the greatest closing contracts course that i can give them and the fact is the problem may not be closing courses and the and the fact may may be a percent of his sales force or her sales force needs to learn that, 
but a whole bunch of people lear- l- need to learn something different. And so historically, and I go back to my spreading the peanut butter equally, we would give an investment to people kind of all equally. That we would, mm-hmm. we, would, we would pick an investment, we'd give it the same. Where we're headed, and that's where predictive analytics really helps, is you can begin to understand what people are responding to these investments and who isn't, and what locations. Does Europe, the, your, your same people in Europe as the same in the U.S. respond differently than the people in the U.S., for example? Um, or does a business unit in San Francisco, people that work there respond differently than a business unit in Miami? Or do engineers respond differently than, than um, salespeople? Or do women respond differently than men? Or do boomers respond differently than millennials? And you can kind of begin to think about all the variables you have, which we call demographics, in your workplace. And so the beauty of the work we're doing is you can understand that. You can understand that certain people in certain locations respond the way you hope to. They're making change is what you expect. And you can understand those people in places that aren't responding to that. And so where the industry is headed, I'm predicting, and I'm beginning to see evidence of this in a few areas, is we're beginning to customize um, our investments for different types of people. So I'll give you a specific example. In learning, we used to build a course and put it up in a learning management system, and that course was this a course. It had all these different learning elements that were built into a course. Now we're seeing the beginnings of not building courses, but 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 building learning bits. And those learning bits build up to a certain kind of historical course. And now I can customize those learning bits for the need of the person that I have. Instead of them taking the whole course, I might only give them two-thirds of the learning bits because that's what they need to learn. So we're beginning to customize our, our learning. This is at the very early stages of this, but we can customize our learning to the person's needs. And I, I believe, I don't, if, if I knew when I'd be in Vegas and retired right now because I, I could predict winning all this money, but <laughs> I believe in the next five years or ten years that we will give you, when we hire you, we will give you your own cocktail for investments. And it will be for you, not for every person we hired in this job. It'll be based on your psychographic and background and work experience and age and maybe culture. And we will give you your own cocktail of investments for you in your life cycle as an employee that will be customized for you. Now, that's a big leap from where we are. That's a big leap from spreading the peanut butter equally. But that's where I think the industry is going to call what we call either segmentation or optimization. Yeah, so when... In marketing, we talk about a segment of one is the goal eventually. It sounds like it's the same thing for developing an employee. We're just 10 years behind marketing and figuring it out, right? Right. That's a great analogy. Marketing now is very sophisticated in their uh, application of 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 a campaign or investment to a specific demographic group. Same thing would apply to, to, to the people that are in our organization. Do these organizations that may want to do this, do they use assess- a lot of assessments of people, some of the standard ones that are out there, like uh, Myers-Briggs, things like they're, that? Well, they're beginning to, they're, and there's a lot of non-standard ones, the new ones that are doing. But So there's, there's some really cool work being done in ta- what I would call talent acquisition, and it's a combination of uh, analytics and psychographics and some behavioral stuff. And they're really beginning to get better at finding the right person for that job that historically may not have fit that demographic profile. Yeah, and I think about maybe 40 or 50 years ago when we were mainly farming and manufacturing based, the emotional intelligence wasn't nearly as critical. But today, because of people being so specialized, nobody can do it all. There's a higher skill set. So people have to be able to really communicate and be kind of socially and emotionally mature. And so I could see that being a really big piece of why someone might succeed or not. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. I think part of it is culture, where you come from. And mm-hmm. part of it is education and part of it's prior work experience. And all of that, you kind of throw all that into the hopper and try to figure out what's the profile of the person for the highest probability of success. But to me, that's just the start. You've done some great work of trying to find a, a, a better candidate for a job based on all this new uh, combination of sciences you can throw in together. But now what do you do with them? Do you put them all through the same onboarding program, which, mm. doesn't, which doesn't make any sense to me, right? Do you, give right. Them all, do you give them all of the same training? Do you, mm. you know, so you begin to think about, okay, we've, we're doing some cool work in beginning to understand demographically the, the, the talent acquisition part. Now how do you extend that to all the other investments you make through their employee life cycle, whether they stay with you two years or they stay with you 20, right? It's, right. Well, do you have any examples of companies you could either mention or talk about that are doing this well? I, I Some of the companies that we think are doing this work don't talk about it because it's they, they view it as a huge competitive advantage. Mm, and that's... Yeah. Part of why I'm doing this new book is I'm trying to highlight with some some practitioners I'm running across that you might not know have heard of that are doing some really cool work that are willing to talk about it and mm-hmm. talking about thought leaders because the, the the book I'm working on is really trying to showcase this really great work that's being done and I'm hoping in my own tiny little way to, to help inspire the industry to go from this 14% to that are doing analytics to a much higher. I'm trying to just kind of goose the industry to do it fast, get going faster. But there's, you know, there's stories coming out of Google that have been leaked out over the last couple of years of they're doing some pretty amazing work. I'll give you one story that I've read multiple times about and that Google can predict before you get tired in your job, they can predict before you get tired in it. So before you begin to think about, I'm a little disgruntled, I'm, not, I'm a little bored, I'm, I may want to go, let's say, work for, um, for Apple. They can predict that based on all these demographical types and predictive analytics. And so before you hit that wall, they'll move you into a, a, a new unit um, they might promote you. They might give you a stretch assignment. And the whole idea is, is they're trying to get ahead of uh, what's in your brain about getting getting bored. And that, <laughs> that's pretty cool stuff. That really is. That's amazing. They're actually using predictive analytics. I'd love to see the model, wouldn't you? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, and, you know, we, we know there was an article a few years ago that was kind of came out and that uh, – Google's HR department is made up of a third HR people, so they kind of understand the art of HR, a third business analyst that know how to frame a study, manage a study, and execute results, and a third statisticians. So if you can imagine having an HR department that has a third statisticians, that's like, Mm. it's unheard of. I mean, most HR departments we work don't have one. Wow, that's fascinating. And it takes me back when I first got my master's degree in statistics, I landed in a credit card bank, and the CEO was a computer science major. And I didn't really have anything to compare it to. But everything was driven by analytics, we even built our own risk models. And, um, and then the next bank I went to was more of the old school, and I got to see the contrast. But to think about an HR department <laughs> with one-third statisticians, it's, it'd be a really fun place to work, I think. <laughs> yeah. it's, so think That's about go, go, go to your bank analogy. I, I can't remember if it was Visa or MasterCard, but they do something like 300,000 marketing experiments a year. Just think of that. Trying to figure out to the customer of one that, to, that you mentioned. So think of <laughs> an HR department right. that, that was doing... Not hundreds of thousands, but dozens of experiments. I mean, that would be mm-hmm. that's groundbreaking work, right? That's where it we think really Google, that's where we think Google is. 
And I don't think Google's success is just because they're cool and young and have a great product. I think a lot of it has to do with the culture they've developed and understanding how to help their people get more engaged, stay energized, and be more productive. You know. Oh, that's very inspiring. And, and I think it also translates to just general happiness of people. Because I think a lot of the steps that are taken, if people have training and development that's tailored to their personal needs, are going to be more satisfied. It could, you know, bode well for the society even. Well, we always look at, you know, in every one of our studies, and, and when I speak about this, you know, and I speak mostly to HR audiences, I said, don't be scared of analytics because there are bad things that can be done by it. But for the most part, these are good things that can happen. And I always talk about there's two outcomes we're always looking for. Does an investment help whatever the business problem you're solving or impacting? Does it help performance? Could be mm-hmm. sales or gross margin or costs or whatever the business. But the other part of that is, is it helping the individual? Does this investment make them more engaged? Does it help them retain them? Does it? So we always look at kind of the people factor of the investment and the organization factor. And without mm-hmm. both, the investments don't work. You could move the needle on the business side and kill your people, essentially. Mm. So, yeah. so we always look at the human side and we look at the organizational side from an outcome point of view. Well, that's great. So we've got about a minute left. If you want to leave the audience with one thing for them to start doing tomorrow in their field, what would that be? What does Nike say? Just do it. Just it, do it. It, it. It's it's really just get started. It, it's a journey. We've been at this eleven years, and we're still trying to figure out certain things. But when somebody asks us, "Could you measure a mentoring program?" because they're they're just too fuzzy to measure, we said we don't know, but we'll try, and we did. We figured it out. So the whole idea okay. is it's a journey. You don't go from zero to hundred miles an hour in one day. So mm-hmm. just get started. Pick something. Oh, well, thank you. Something non-controversial and get started. And that's that's really and the and, and there's a lot of help both online and consultants and uh, at universities. There's a lot of people that can help you get started. All right. Well, Gene, thank you so much for being my guest today, and I hope you'll come back and visit us again. Thanks, Olivia. This was fun. It was great to talk to you again. Thank you. So next week, my guest will be Charles Eisenstein, and we'll be discussing sacred economics. So be sure to tune in and for a full description of this and other upcoming shows, as well as access to all past shows and guest bios, please visit www.quantumbusinessinsights.com. I'm your host, Olivia Parrud, saying thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parr-Rood, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week. 